Our scripture reading today is found in John chapter 10, starting at verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus went in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would hear your voice this morning. And that you would dwell within us and reveal yourself to us through the sacred page. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 10. As you heard read this morning, we are going to be looking at uh, the theme of uh, Jesus as as the shepherd, as the good shepherd, and his people as sheep. In John chapter 10, verse 11, just prior to our text for this morning... Jesus makes the claim, I am the good shepherd. What kind of image does this claim conjure up in our minds? For us, it can lean to the sentimental, can't it? Most of us have seen Christian bookstore pictures of the blue-eyed Jesus with some fluffy lambs in his arms in a very pastoral scene in the countryside. It's a little bit saccharine, isn't it? But what did Christ claim to be the good shepherd mean to the first century Jew? For those listening to Jesus, this claim would have immediately triggered all kinds of imagery from the Old Testament. First of all, the image of a shepherd would not have been a sentimental one. Shepherds were tough guys, sometimes a little bit unsavory who bravely and strongly led their sheep, fighting off predators like wolves and lions and bears. Many of the great leaders of the Old Testament were shepherds, from Abraham to Moses, up to King David, and then on, looking on to a future messianic figure who will one day come and shepherd Israel. Most profoundly, as the Old Testament unfolds, it becomes clear that no mere mortal is up to the task of adequately shepherding God's people. Ultimately, it is God himself who will come to shepherd his people, delivering them from danger 
and bringing them to a place of peace, rest, and safety. The Psalms are full of this imagery, aren't they? Psalm 23 is often a favorite. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 95, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We find one of the greatest examples of God himself as the great shepherd in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 34, the Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy against Israel's failing leaders who are described, interestingly, as evil shepherds. Listen, starting in verse 2 of of Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. What's God's response to this? First, it's judgment on the evil shepherds. But then this promise, starting at verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. So then, skipping forward to our gospel reading for this morning in the Gospel of John, when Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, what is he essentially saying? By the way, that word good in good shepherd could be translated most excellent shepherd or perfect shepherd. So when Jesus says, with all of that Old Testament context, I am the perfect shepherd, what is he claiming? He's not only placing himself among the heroes of the Old Testament, he's identifying himself with God Almighty. So this language Jesus is using about himself is much more charged and potent than a sentimental scene in the country with sheep. It is a revelation of Jesus' identity as the promised Messiah and the divine Son of God. So with that as a bit of an introduction, we arrive at our text for today, starting in John 10, verse 22. Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, why all this detail? It could just be to emphasize the eyewitness nature of the account. That's possible. However, John is the master of literary signs and symbols. Jesus has just declared himself to be the good shepherd. And now John inserts these details about a festival and it being winter and him walking in a very specific place. Why? We might know the Feast of Dedication as Hanukkah. Around 150 years before Christ, Judea was under the control of the Seleucids. The temple had been desecrated and used to offer sacrifices to pagan gods, the most unimaginable thing for a Jewish person. The Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, commemorated the liberation of Judea by the Maccabees and significantly 
the cleansing and purification of the temple. Now, in the Gospel of John, what's the first thing Jesus does after his first miracle in in John chapter 2? What does he do in the temple? He cleanses the temple, doesn't he? Hanukkah is also called the festival of lights. Remember the menorah. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's also a feast of liberation from bondage. In John 8, Jesus also says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So by way of literary symbolism, could John be hinting that Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast and ultimately the fulfillment of Judaism itself? It's possible. In light of all this, the next verse is no wonder to us. Look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Literally, the text says the Jews encircled him. Or we would say in our our language, they cornered him. And they said, How long will you agitate our minds? They don't like what Jesus has been saying about himself. They don't like that he is apparently usurping their religion usurping their festivals, and claiming to be the fulfillment of all of it. What is Jesus' response? Look at verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here Jesus is making the distinction between God's true people, his sheep, And those who outwardly appear to be God's people, but do not actually know him. For us living in the city in 2016, the sheep analogy doesn't really connect, does it? Perhaps a dog illustration would work better for us. My brother and sister-in-law, Rob and Aaron Heinrichs, have a miniature Australian shepherd named Montana. I've known Montana since she was a pup. And I even looked after her for Aaron and Rob on an occasion. I always joke that I formed a special bond with her at that time. We played ball together. We wrestled. We ran around in the field in the rain. We spent time together. And from then on, we were buddies. Now, there is a great contrast in Montana's behavior between when a stranger walks up to or past Aaron and Rob's front door and when I walk up to the house. When Montana hears a stranger coming, she growls and barks and gets jumpy. When I walk up to the door and call to her, her tail goes crazy and she squeals and she comes to greet me and she steals my shoes and she follows me wherever I go. Why? Why is there a difference? She hears my voice and I know her and she follows me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Listen, it doesn't matter how much the stranger knows about miniature Aussie shepherds. 
It doesn't matter if the stranger is a canine specialist or a vet or the biggest dog lover in the world. The stranger doesn't know Montana. And Montana doesn't know the stranger. So too, the unbelieving Jews that cornered Jesus, they may have known everything about the law, but they didn't know the lawgiver. They may have been experts in temple and sacrifice and festivals and the minutia of the law, but they didn't know the God that all of those things pointed to. If they had, they would have heard his voice. He was standing right in front of them in human flesh. Verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So in this passage, Jesus is describing what true religion looks like. Let's look again at verse 27. There are three couplets here in the text that describe the intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. Look now at verse 27. Here's the first couplet. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Here we have mutual recognition. We recognize his voice. We respond in faith. And he acknowledges us and unites himself to us. This describes Christian conversion and initiation, doesn't it? There's a mutual recognition and a relationship begins. Here's the second couplet. This kind of straddles verse 27 and 28. They follow me. I give them eternal life. Here we have reciprocal activity. We have activity from the sheep and activity from the shepherd. Our activity is following. It's obedience. The Lord's activity is freely bestowing on us eternal life. Notice here the Lord says, I give them eternal life, not I will give them eternal life. The participation in the divine life starts now in the present. And the final couplet here, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We can trust the Lord because the shepherd has promised that no one, no thief, no wolf, no human being, no spiritual being can take us out of our secure place in him. Now, so far, there's been kind of a mutual relationship, a kind of a give-and-take relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, right? But Jesus puts a corrective to that. Look at the next verse in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Who initiates this whole thing? It is the Father. The sheep are merely responding to what the Father is doing. Our faith, our obedience, our destiny, and our security are all a response to the Father's work. So if that's the Father's work, what is the role of the Son? Look up to verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the Father gives the sheep to the Son, and the Son lays down his life for the sheep. This is the scandal of the gospel. Think about it for a second. In real life, would a shepherd, especially a hired shepherd, ever willingly die for a sheep? No. It's unfathomable. Why? There's a great difference in value between a sheep and a human being. 
A human being is much more precious than a sheep. But hear this. The difference, the ontological difference between us and Almighty God is infinitely greater than the gap between a man and a sheep. That's why the gospel is so shocking. Shepherd dies for sheep would make headlines. But God dies for humanity is beyond comprehension. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, as Paul says. But that is what our Lord has done for us. God dies so that we, his sheep, might live. That's the gospel. So what's our response to this? How do we know that we are his sheep? Listen to the words of Jesus one more time. My sheep hear my voice, they follow me, and they will never perish. In other words, true sheep will listen, obey, and trust. Say that with me. Listen, obey, and trust. Firstly, if we are his sheep, we will listen to his voice. There are so many competing voices in our world today. There's the media. There's social media. There's academia. There are a multitude of political ideologies. Where is the voice of the Lord to be found? Ultimately, in the Word of God, in the Holy Scriptures. As we learn, mark, read, and inwardly digest the Scriptures, we are listening to the Lord's voice. We come to recognize the Lord's voice. And when the Spirit teaches us what the Lord's voice sounds like in His written Word, we begin to hear His voice on our minds, and it's imprinted in our hearts and in our conscience. We listen to His voice in creation, in the poor, and so on. But if we want to listen to the voice of the Lord, we must be people of the word. Secondly, if we are his sheep, we will obey. Jesus says, my sheep follow me. Are our lives characterized by obedience to Christ? Remember in John's gospel, our Lord also says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Are there areas of your life and my life that we are refusing to yield to Christ this morning? Obedience is not a popular word today, is it? How often do you hear the word obedience or obey in a positive light in our culture? Almost never. It's, it's, it's often used as kind of something derogatory, obedience. Ultimately, real Christianity is unpopular because it demands obedience. The many contemporary spiritualities today don't demand obedience because ultimately they are forms of self-worship, self-improvement. Christianity recognizes that we are not self-creating. We have been created by God for His purpose and His glory. And as Christians, we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. We have been freed from slavery to sin and death. We have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son that He loves in order that we now may be servants of righteousness. We're not saved by good works, 
But we are saved for good works. We're saved so that we may be a new creation. Jesus is our Savior, but is He our Lord? When I was a kid, my my dad was a youth pastor, and in his office, there were all kinds of posters on the wall. Uh, There was a poster of Dr. J, and there was a poster of Larry Bird, and of, uh, who was it, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson with their arms around each other. And amidst those posters, there was this one poster that I've never forgotten. It was rows and rows and rows of red apples, but there was one green apple in there. Why did he have that poster on his wall? Obedience. Are we the green apples in the sea of red apples? When people look at us in the culture, do they go, oh, that's, that's odd. Why are they doing that? When they see us in our schools, or, or do they say, that's weird. Why are you hanging out with that kid? He's a loser. Why are you spending time with him? Or are they asking, that's weird. Why are you not indulging in pornography with us? That's weird. You know, why are you not getting wasted on the weekend? Are they asking those questions? Or are we living like the world? Are we? Is there anything different between us in the pews and those, the unredeemed? Are we being obedient to Christ? It convicts me. Does it convict you? Thirdly, Back to the good news. If we are his sheep, we can trust that we are secure in the arms of the shepherd. This is so reassuring. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is the work of Christ. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. To put it another way, what does Paul say in Romans 8? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. Our security in him doesn't depend on our obedience, does it? We're called to obedience, but our obedience does not purchase our security. His blood purchases our security. And we have hope in that. If we are in Christ, we can trust that he will deliver on his promise and that our life and destiny are secure in him. Christ the Good Shepherd So much more than a pastoral scene in the country, isn't it? Listen, obey, trust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am convicted this morning that I have not been a sheep that follows you. I need you to come along and save me out of the danger, out of the predators, and bring me to yourself.
and cleanse me from my unrighteousness, that I may be secure in you. Thank you that you are the good shepherd and that you lay down your life for the sheep. Now enable us by your spirit to respond to you and to follow you and to live in newness of life. Amen.